Hello and welcome back to Japan Memo, the IISS Japan Chair Program podcast where we are joined by experts, strategists and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Robert Ward, the IISS Japan Chair and Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy. And I'm Yuka Koshino, Research Fellow for Security and Technology Policy at the IISS. In this episode, we are delighted to welcome Mori Satoru-sensei and Zach Cooper to take a deep dive into questions surrounding Japan's defense and security roles in the event of a Taiwan contingency. Mori-sensei is professor at Keio University in Tokyo and senior fellow at the Nakasone Peace Institute, where he is an expert on contemporary U.S. foreign and defense policy with a focus on U.S. strategy in Asia. Prior to his current position, he taught at Hosei University in Tokyo, from 2008 to 2022. He also served in the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs from 1996 to 2001. Zach is senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, AEI, where he focuses on U.S. strategy in Asia, including alliance dynamics and U.S.-China competition. He also teaches at Princeton University. Before joining AEI, he was senior fellow for Asia Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and we used to be colleagues there as well. He also served as assistant to the Deputy National Security Advisor for Combating Terrorism at the National Security Council from 2007 to 2008, and as a special assistant to the Principal Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy at the Department of Defense from 2005 to 2006. Thank you all for being here to explore what is an elusive and existential issue for the peace and security of Japan, the Indo-Pacific region, and the world more broadly. Since Admiral Davidson, who led the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, uh, spoke before the the Senate in in 2021, when he said that China could try and take Taiwan in the next six years, so before the end of this decade, discussions around scenarios of a Taiwan contingency have really picked up speed. Then, of course, we had uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan in August 2022, and the fierce Chinese military reaction to it uh, further raised concerns about what China might do with regard to Taiwan and its goals regarding Taiwan. So in this context, over the past years, CSIS and the Center for New American Security, CNAS, have wargamed some Taiwan contingency scenarios. Uh, Zach, what was the main context of the, of the war games conducted by CSIS and CNAS? And what are the main takeaways from these war games? Well, first, it's great to be here. Uh, good to be with some old friends. I would say on, on war games, the first thing to note is that what you get out of them is often what you put in, by which I mean the designers of war games often have as much to do with the outcome as the people who are actually playing in them. There's a critical aspect of this, which is that often you hear that the United States loses almost every war game it fights against China, but you have to keep in mind these are war games usually designed to demonstrate an area where the United States or Japan or others have some weaknesses so that those weaknesses can be addressed. And so often, I don't know, I've probably done 50, 60 war games on Taiwan issues. And, you know, in in most of them, the U.S. loses, but in most of them, that's the point, right? We design the game for the U.S. to lose. I think one thing that was interesting and a little different about the CSIS and MIT scenario that some people have done recently is that they, I think, are trying to take a very even-handed approach and just see what the outcome is without predetermining it. I'm not going to say that the outcome was good for the United States and Japan, because I was playing on the China team in the CSIS-MIT scenario, and we lost 
700 aircraft the U.S. and Japan did. The positive for the U.S. and Japan was that it was not possible for the Chinese team to take the full island of Taiwan. I think we were only able to take about a third of Taiwan before we ran out of amphibious lifts. So basically the ability to get people and logistics from China to Taiwan. So, you know, I think you'll get many, many different outcomes from many different war games. But the end result is that they probably don't tell us who's going to win, but they do tell us what some of the critical choke points are for each side. And I think for the United States and Japan, it's the vulnerability of our bases. And for China, it tends to be the vulnerability of their amphibious ships. And I think that lesson, at least, is clear from some of these games. Quick question on the on the tail of that, in terms of the vulnerability of bases, this is something that's been talked about in Japan ahead of the revision of the NSS and the associated documents and then beyond that. Do you see that this is being taken up as you would like within the Japanese government in terms of what they need to do with regard to the bases? I think we've made progress. And Satoru and I have done a lot of work on this over the years. So I'm interested in his views. I think one thing that we should be doing is ensuring that Japan and the United States can use civilian facilities, both ports and airfields, in a crisis. And there has been a lot of work on that. But we probably could do more to make sure that we have the requisite supplies and logistical elements at those facilities. My sense is that we have made some progress in that area, but there's probably still more to do. I can see Satoru nodding vigorously there. So would you like to add something to what Zach said, Satoru? I fully agree what Zach just said. The Ministry of Defense is now advancing uh, so-called seven initiatives as a part of their new defense capability enhancement efforts. And I think the seventh item that they have is basically about enhancing resilience and also enhancing sustainment. This is basically about investing in passive defense measures and so forth. So I think the Japanese government is fully aware uh, that we really need to work in the area of enhancing resilience of bases and so forth. But we'll have to see how much funding will be there to make progress in this area. So Mori-sensei, um, similarly in Japan, the situations surrounding cross-strait issues are exacerbating and unclear Chinese intentions over the strait and the PLA's growing capability and the lack of transparency of its defense spending has been a serious concern for Japan. And most recently in Japan, the sentiment of a Taiwan contingency um, being Japan's contingency is also now kind of echoed more widely among practitioners, politicians, and Japanese public alike. Furthermore, the sentiment um, was also coupled with the notion of Ukraine today could be East Asia tomorrow, which was um, the line that the Prime Minister Kishida mentioned in his keynote speech at this year's uh, Shangri-La Dialogue after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In line with this, the, in Japan as well, the war games have been conducted in Tokyo, both in um, August 2021 and 2022 by the Japan Forum for Strategic Studies, inviting politicians, former ministers, former senior both civil and the military officers on the Japanese self-defense forces and academics. So Mori-sensei, what are you hearing about the context of these war games in Japan? And what are the key takeaways from these war games? With regard to the war game by the Japan Forum for Strategic Studies, they conducted it in early August 2022. And based on a publicly disclosed report, they apparently tested Japanese responses under three different scenarios. One involved the so-called gray zone situation on and around the Senkaku Islands that rapidly escalated to a higher intensity situation involving Taiwan to constitute a double contingency. And the second one tested Japanese responses, such as transportation of Japanese nationals 
evacuating them from Taiwan and civil defense measures under an escalating situation where China initiates so-called hybrid warfare against Taiwan. And the third scenario involved Chinese nuclear coercion, which I think was new. There were apparently numerous takeaways that they mentioned in their report. And I can't cover all of them, but I just want to highlight the third scenario, which was a one that involved Chinese nuclear blackmail. There is now growing awareness about the strategic implications of China's growing nuclear arsenal, as policymakers and defense experts have paid considerable attention to the Pentagon's 2021 China Military Power Report's projection of uh, 700 warheads by 2027 and 1,000 warheads by 2030. This has caused a lot of concern among policymakers, as well as security experts, and also the discovery of ICBM silos and so forth. Uh, Defense experts are examining the risks of Chinese threats to use nuclear weapons and also the risks and costs of a protracted conventional war resulting from the so-called stability-instability paradox. I think the scenario reflected the fact that China's growing nuclear arsenal looms large in defense planning. In that JFSS's scenario, the PRC actually detonated a nuclear bomb near a reef off the coast of Taipei. And if I'm not mistaken, in the CNAS's war game, China also detonated the bomb near Hawaii after exchanging conventional strikes. So two points here. One is that there is this implicit assumption that China may deviate from their non-first-use policy and that PRC nuclear employment could take various forms. And in this connection, uh, one of the questions is, will they threaten to use nuclear weapons in the very early stages of the conflict to deter U.S. intervention or use them to achieve de-escalation after undergoing an escalatory exchanges of uh, conventional strikes? Secondly, CNAS and JFSS war games did not fully explore what could follow after a demonstrative nuclear explosion. Uh, quite frankly, I think the subsequent phases are extremely important, and the wargaming community would probably need to examine different types of scenarios or assumptions based on how the Japanese, Taiwanese, and American publics would react to these kinds of Chinese demonstrative nuclear shots. And this remains one of the major questions that needs to be explored. A follow-up question, uh, Satoru, if I may, about the, the wargaming. Given Japan's uh, strict legal constraints over the use of force by the self-defense forces, particularly compared to the U.S. military, assumptions and um, scenarios in the war games presumably are quite different in, in some areas. What are the significant differences and similarities in, in these uh, scenarios and assumptions between the U.S. and Japan? So I want to echo Zach by pointing out that assumptions are assumptions in the sense that they can be changed based on what you want to test. So it's hard to identify similarities and differences that are meaningful. But since you mentioned Japanese legal constraints, I just want to make one point regarding the issue of whether or not legal constraints would be an issue for Japan when responding to a Taiwan contingency. If I understand correctly, I think in the CSIS's war game, there was this assumption that Japan will not actively respond unless attacked directly. I think that was one of the assumptions that was made. But I think right now, uh, Japan's legal system is such that Japan will be able to flexibly respond to any developing situation surrounding Taiwan, even short of a direct attack on Japan. And I think that was reflected more in the JFSS's war game, since we have the 2015 security law that provides for a legal framework for dealing with a variety of security situations. Under this legal framework, the Japanese government is able to determine different kinds of legally constructed security situations and be able to mobilize JSDF units. So based on this legal framework, the Japanese government is able to more flexibly respond to various situations. And I think allows for a more flexible and dynamic responses. 
very interesting about Japan's flexibility in terms of responses, but still Japan's role could also be contingent of U.S. involvement in such a contingency. So that's why I have a question to Zach. So the U.S. government adheres to a one China policy and strategic ambiguity, despite President Biden's repeated remarks that may be perceived as a shift in this strategy. As a result, there's no clear line on when the U.S. would or would not intervene in the end of a contingency or conflict. Um, so Zach, what do you think are the likely scenarios in which the U.S. could or could not take part in a Taiwan contingency? My guess of the Biden administration is that if we saw a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, that actually they would get involved. I think the president has been pretty clear about his own personal viewpoints about this. I think the harder question, and this would be difficult, I, I would expect for Tokyo and for Canberra and some others, is what to do when things are a little bit more ambiguous, where it's not a Chinese invasion of Taiwan out of the blue, but maybe Beijing is able to paint something that Taipei has done as having precipitated a crisis, right? So a good example would be we're heading into election season in Taiwan in January 2024. They will have another presidential election. The result, I think, will be pretty closely watched in China, but the run-up to the election, I think, potentially could be the dangerous period. Let's say that one of the candidates in Taiwan says some things that are sort of independence-leaning or in favor of greater sovereignty. I think that would create some difficult choices for the United States and probably for Japan and for some others. And those are the cases in which I think it's even more ambiguous what the United States or, or other countries might do. If there was a Chinese quarantine, as they would call it, but really what we would call a blockade of Taiwan in that kind of scenario, what would the U.S. do? I would think the U.S. would probably get involved, but I think those choices would be actually much more difficult. So in my view, it's relatively simple if China basically attacks Taiwan out of the blue, but my guess is that that is a very, very unlikely scenario. I think what's far more likely is that you'll see a bit of a tit-for-tat move and a Chinese effort to blame Taiwan for any kind of tensions, and that will complicate the decisions of political leaders in friendly countries. A question to Satoru. In grey zone situations, uh, it's not immediately clear if or when the self-defence force can be mobilised and what it could do. Just one example of sort of how difficult things might be in the event of a, of a scenario. But what do you think the scenarios are in which Japan could or, or could not take part in a, a Taiwan contingency response? Right now, as I mentioned earlier, with the national security law back in 2015, Japan will be able to respond to various scenarios involving Taiwan, as well as, you know, other gray zone situations. We have different kinds of legal situations in this framework, like important influence situations and at a higher level, survival threatening situations. And the range of permissible JSDF actions vary depending on the type of situation that has been determined by the government. It is sometimes assumed that there are rigid yardsticks to measure certain situations and that it's going to be very difficult for the Japanese government to actually make a determination about when a particular situation exists. But the reality will be that determination of legal situations will be driven by policy judgments. This basically means that the government will determine what the JSDF needs to do and then determine that any particular situation exists or not. So the wording of the law does stipulate certain general conditions, but it's general enough to allow flexible interpretation. 
For example, uh, in the case of a survival-threatening situation, it reads, and I quote, an armed attack against a foreign country that is in a close relationship with Japan occurs and as a result threatens Japan's survival and poses a clear danger to fundamentally overturn people's right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, unquote. The law says, quote-unquote, country, but the chief cabinet secretary said last year in December that the government will make judgments on a case-by-case basis based on specific circumstances of a particular situation that may arise. So it seems that a situation involving Taiwan could potentially be determined as a survival-threatening situation if it rises to a very high-intensity situation, or it could be determined as an important influence situation if it's at a lower-intensity situation. Anything outside of those two situations, we also have another different legal framework where JSDF can operate and carry out different kind of activities. So in my sense, there will be no actual legal constraints that would you know, kind of stop Japan from doing something when facing a very ambiguous or very difficult situation. My answer would be that it's more to do with practical, actual difficulties, as Zach said, you know, ambiguous situations. For example, how do we evacuate Japanese nationals from Taiwan in a, in a very uh, sort of a semi-blockade situation? Uh, would that be even possible using civilian aircraft, for example, or civilian ships out of Taiwan? Obviously, it will be if China announces that they actually have established a quarantine or a blockade, then we have to think about the risks of them deploying sea mines or armed UUVs or UAVs or whatever. So uh, those would be the kind of difficult judgments that the Japanese uh, government will face when we face that kind of uh, ambiguous situation. Other uh, actions that could potentially constrain uh, Japanese action could be public reaction. Uh, from certain situations. If the public is not willing to sort of support a government decision to actually intervene or respond to a different kinds of scenarios or situations developing around Taiwan, that would put the cabinet and the prime minister into a very difficult situation where they have to face the necessity of responding by the government. But at the same time, if you don't have the public backing up, then uh, you lose support. And since we're a parliamentary democracy, that's not good for, for the cabinet or the government. Both of you mentioned about the more ambiguous situation that will be challenging uh, for both Japan and and U.S. respectively to respond. What are the possible action that the two countries can take under the U.S.-Japan alliance? And what might be the likely challenges that the alliance could face in such a situation? The biggest challenge for the alliance is to make sure that we have the same approach, regardless of what the situation is. And I do think there are some differences in how the U.S. and Japan would approach these issues. For the U.S., we're probably a little bit more forward-leaning on some of these Taiwan scenarios. And there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, one is that we're, we're not right nearby. So the, the risk to the American people is a bit different than it would be for the Japanese people. Another is that the U.S. just has a different relationship with Taiwan than Japan does. I think increasingly the political debate in Washington is probably a little clearer than it is in Japan, although Satoru can tell me if if that's right. When you see uh, Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan and expressing support, and and I think in a couple of months we'll see the likely next House Speaker, uh, Kevin McCarthy, go to Taiwan and express his support for Taiwan. I think it's pretty clear where American politicians stand. And as you've already mentioned, we've had a number of statements by Joe Biden making clear where the president is. So you've got leaders of both parties being very supportive of Taipei in recent years. In some ways, that makes the U.S. decision making a little bit easier and clearer. But my sense is that actually in the alliance context, 
Japan's probably not quite there. And so I think that would make for some difficult alliance decisions around some of these more ambiguous cases, right? So if there's a perception that somehow Taiwan has precipitated a crisis, then I, I worry a lot about what the U.S. and Japan might do together and whether there might be some Japanese hesitance to, to get involved, especially if Japan hasn't been directly attacked. So just to connect this back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, a lot of war games, they'll test out different scenarios. So the CSIS MIT game that we've been talking about, I think they tested something like 25 different scenarios. So they ran the game 25 times with different assumptions, and it makes a huge difference for the United States, whether Japan is involved early on in a conflict, if Japan allows its facilities to be used, if Japan is directly aiding strikes on China, you know, exactly we would call these ROEs, the rules of engagement, right? What Japan does in these kinds of scenarios. And I think without a lot of confidence about exactly what Japan would do, the U.S. has to plan as if Japan might not be that involved. And I think that is a real challenge from an alliance perspective, right? Because ideally what we would have is very close integration and very close interoperability. But if the U.S. has to assume that we would have to be prepared in case Japan doesn't fight, then that sort of decreases our reliance on Japan and therefore decreases our incentive to worry quite as much about interoperability. That, I think, is, is increasingly going to be a challenge going forward. Japanese reaction to a very ambiguous situation surrounding Taiwan uh, could very much be affected, as I mentioned earlier, by the Japanese public's reaction to that kind of situation. One of the possibilities that we are very worried about is the possibility of China resorting to a sort of a nuclear blackmail, uh, threatening that it might use all means necessary to retaliate against any potential intervention by the U.S. as well as uh, Japan supporting the United States. And if that is the case, then the United States president might make a determination that they are going to go in and deal with the situation and intervene. And when they ask for our support to the Japanese government, the Japanese government would be faced with a situation where they would want to support the United States, but the public is not supporting the government's decision. In other words, if the public is unwilling to assume the risks of being attacked by China, then uh, that corners the prime minister and the cabinet uh, into a very difficult situation. That possibility is a risk. I haven't really found a way to sort of go around this, but generally speaking, I think we have to uh, create a situation where we have to convince China that this kind of nuclear blackmail is not going to work. What can we do uh, during peacetime to send the signal to China that the United States and Japan will not be threatened or deterred by this kind of Chinese uh, nuclear blackmail? Some things that we might want to do as a part of this very difficult situation is first to do strategic communication to the Japanese domestic audience. I think the public needs to understand what Taiwan contingency means for Japan. Uh, We do have this general phrase saying that Taiwan contingency is Japan's contingency. I don't think the public fully appreciate what that means yet. China can easily wage a sort of an information warfare against or information campaign against the Japanese public saying, are you willing to die for defending Taiwan? Uh, Why would you want to do that? And if the public is not convinced why they would be sort of supporting the United States to prevent China from invading Taiwan, I think the public opinion will be either divided or kind of tilt towards non-intervention. 
the government as well as security experts and other uh, public intellectuals really need to think about what it means for Japan to actually participate in any kind of military operation to defend Taiwan. And ultimately, my personal uh, opinion is that this is not really about Japan and the United States defending Taiwan. This is about uh, basically preventing China from establishing regional hegemony. And this is a choice about whether Japan wants to live under Chinese regional hegemony in the future. This is basically about Japan's security and Japan's future. And the public needs to understand this. So this is not about risking your life to defend people in Taiwan. This is about risking your life to defend your own country's independence and your uh, future. And that kind of public debate needs to take place or otherwise, you know, the public will not support any kind of response. Other than that, on the you know more practical side, I think combined planning, targeting, uh, if we were to introduce counter-strike capabilities, that's something that we need. Closer command and control uh, coordination. And I think, Zach, uh, you've been uh, also talking about joint capabilities development. I'm fully, I fully agree with that. I think combined exercises ranging from gray zone coordination to, quite frankly, limited nuclear war is something that we need to prepare. It's not that we are, you know, we want to see that happen, but I think uh, Japan and the United States really need to look at that very high-end uh, conflict in order to send a signal to China that we will be fully prepared uh, to deal with that kind of situation. Those are some of the things that I think uh, Japan and the United States should do to be able to uh, deal not only with the ambiguous situation, but, you know, a higher intensity situation as well. Just to continue your point, uh, Satoru, about what Japan needs to do in, in peacetime, in, in a question to Zach, what do you think the Japan-US alliance needs to do in peacetime to get better prepared for a potential contingency? I think there are a lot of uh, preparations that we probably have to make. You know, One, which Satoru mentioned, is making sure that each of us have the right operational constructs for how we would actually conduct this sort of campaign. One thing that Japan is just now doing is thinking through its operational command structures. So this is an issue that people have talked about for a very long time, that you know, for, for many years, Japan joint staff has had the responsibility to run a combat operation. I think most experts will tell you that that's probably not the right long-term arrangement, that you need an operational commander who can handle not just their own service and not just the MSDF or ASDF or GSDF, but all three together. That's something that we have in the United States through the Indo-Pacific Command, uh, which has its different component commands, which are the air side, the Navy side, et cetera, et cetera. And Japan hasn't quite had that right structure. So I think one big improvement is that Japan is building out this new command structure, which will be able to operate much more cleanly with the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. I think that's a real important bit of progress and making sure that that's done quickly, the interactions are understood by both the American side and the Japanese side, that's going to be critical. Another area that I would highlight is uh, the counter-strike capability that we have and what the expectations are about what we each will be willing to strike in a conflict. If we're talking about an invasion, the clearest vulnerability that China will have is its amphibious vessels. They are big, they are slow. China would need lots of them to transport an invading force across the Taiwan Strait. And we need to know exactly what they would be vulnerable to, right? We have to work through with Japan whether Japan would be open to striking those ships. 
whether Japan would be open to striking the port facilities that those ships might be leaving from. And frankly, the same for the United States. In lots of the war games that I've done of an invasion, that ends up being the most critical question is, how quickly can you sink these ships? And I think we need a very clear understanding ahead of a conflict about what Japan would do in regard to those amphibious vessels. And frankly, Japan needs to understand what the United States would do as well. Maybe a third area, which I think is going to be increasingly important, is we probably have to have some more direct discussions about extended deterrence issues, which Satoru has raised. Both Korea and Japan are asking some fair questions about U.S. extended deterrence. And I I think this is driven in part by China's very rapid nuclear buildup. There's probably more information coming out on this than anything else in terms of China's military modernization. This has really shifted very quickly. I think we're at a point where we need to have some more direct discussions with our Northeast Asian allies about exactly what the United States would do if China were to threaten use of nuclear weapons or, God forbid, actually use nuclear weapons, so that Japan and Korea have more clarity about what the U.S. approach would be in this scenario. And we do have extended deterrence dialogues with both Japan and Korea, but they are not involved in our planning process, which is a big difference from the U.S. alliance with NATO, as as you, Robert, know know well. So I think we probably need to build in some joint planning on nuclear issues into the U.S.-Japan alliance. It's going to be difficult. It's a very sensitive issue, so this, this won't happen quickly. But I, I think we probably have to be prepared for that kind of potential eventuality as well. Thank you for that. Since Japan's three strategic documents, including the National Security Strategy, the Defense Strategy, the NDPG, and the procurement strategy, the MTDP, <laughs> are under review and are expected to go public next month. So first, Mori-sensei, how do you think a Taiwan contingency would be addressed in these documents and the need for preparation or responsive cap- capabilities will be included in these documents? The three strategic documents will be set in a manner that would deal with the Taiwan contingency. With regard to the actual wording, we have to see how it is uh, mentioned in the documents because obviously you know, there are uh, diplomatic implications to uh, what we say in those uh, official documents uh, vis-a-vis our relationship with China. And the prime minister will have to think about how he wants to precisely use the term Taiwan in those documents. I'm not quite sure how it's going to be dealt there. But in terms of what the kind of initiatives that will be needed to deal with the Taiwan contingencies, we will be there. And I mentioned about the seven initiatives, uh, which is uh, standoff capabilities, uh, comprehensive air and missile defense, uh, unmanned assets or uncrewed assets, cross-domain operation capabilities, which will involve space cyber electromagnetic domains, and command and control enhancement involving AI-driven decision-centric warfare capabilities and strategic lift and resilience and sustainment. So those will be there, uh, I think. I would actually prioritize four efforts uh, that will probably require urgent funding as well as actual efforts. One would be passive defense investment to harden bases and critical defense facilities. I mentioned this earlier. Uh, second is, uh, Zach also mentioned, counter-strike capabilities. Third would be cyber defense capabilities. I think uh, Japan is now actively discussing about this concept of active cyber defense. Most importantly, dramatic investment in enhancing JSDF readiness. This is not often highlighted, but this is very serious uh, because JSDF is said to be very low on everything from munitions, parts of various kind, 
uh, munition depots, medical personnel, shelters, nuclear shelters, and high endurance based facilities, and so forth. This readiness also is a is a major issue uh, that that will require a lot of tension, and uh, you know ultimately all the th- three strategic documents as well as the M- midterm defense plan will have to be funded. Right now, we are entering this debate over the defense budget financing, where the government will have to make a decision on how all these defense programs will be funded. And people are talking about tax increase, debt financing, and so forth. I think it's going to be a mixture of various kinds of sources, and it will also include the cutting of the budget of other programs, which will essentially amount to a reallocation of the national budget from non-defense programs to defense programs. But I'm pretty confident that this so-called 2% target will be achieved sooner or later on annual terms. The Japanese government's total expenditure, including debt servicing and everything, is about 106 trillion yen. Now, the fiscal 2022 defense budget was about 5.3 trillion yen. So doubling the defense budget from 1% to 2% of GDP means increasing the defense budget from 5 trillion yen to 10 trillion yen. And this means increasing the total national budget from 106 trillion yen to 111 trillion yen. An increase in the order of magnitude from 106 to 111 trillion yen is not impossible. By NATO standards, we are already at 1.24% of GDP. So I think the 2% target is possible. And public opinion polls show that 60 to 70% of the public support support defense spending increase. So it's a matter of political will and decision. The coalition government should be able to agree. And they will have a very tough discussion about where to get the funding. One proposal that is floating around is that they fund the defense programs mainly through national debt for the first couple of years and then move to tax increase because tax increase requires political heavy lifting and the prime minister may not have enough political capital in the near term. Also, from an economic perspective, uh, some say that time is not ripe for a tax increase due to negative effects it may have on the Japanese economy that is now experiencing rising prices and so forth. But if we completely postpone the tax increase to 2025, national elections will appear on the horizon and it will make it even more difficult to implement. One option could be to wait until the next national elections for the tax increase, but the Japanese national debt is already huge. Avoiding tax increase would be interpreted as a lack of political resolve to strengthen Japanese defense capabilities. So it is probably better to consider tax increase from the outset so that the current generation assumes the costs and also mitigate the burden on future generations who will have to inevitably assume the cost through debt that is already enormous. And I think it would send a strong signal to the international community that Japan is serious about contributing to regional security. If the prime minister were to make a difficult decision to include the tax increase as one source of financing among others. Right now, I am optimistic that they will be able to actually achieve the GDP 2% target. It's good to hear a confident forecast there, Satoru. That 2%, you're confident it's going to be achieved. Do you have a, a time frame for achieving that? The government seems five years, so that's that's the preferred time frame. But uh, earlier, the better, I think. And I think they'll probably come up with a solid plan. My impression is that, you know, speaking with officials and so forth, is that they will actually uh, sort of have a solid plan that they will be able to, you know, achieve that kind of uh, uh, level uh, within the next five years. Funding is important to express the political will that Japan is serious about enhancing its defense capabilities. But at the same time, we have to look at the actual uh, programs that's going to be funded. 
Thank you. I'm afraid we're at the end of our podcast for this uh, this session, which is a shame because I think we could go on talking about these issues for a very long time. But it brings us to our two Japan memo questions that we ask all our guests. The first question is, do you have a book recommendation for listeners who wish to understand Japan and its issues better? Zach, to you first, please. I should have recommended one of Satoru's books. That would have been the, the really smart thing to do. My recommendation is is a somewhat old book, a book by Michael Barnhart called Japan Prepares for a Total War, which actually looks at Japan's, as he calls it, search for economic security before World War II. I thought this might be of interest to listeners in part because I think it talks about some of the kinds of decisions that Japan had to make, which in some ways will remind people of some of the decisions that China is trying to think through today. You know, as a rising power, how could Japan make changes to the international order without leading to conflict? And I think the struggle over these questions, in particular, the struggle about the economic role that Japan sought. And eventually the, the answer ended up being basically autarky, as Robert, you you know very well. I, I think this story is one that is playing out in some ways in China today as well. So it's a very thoughtful book. It has a little bit of international relations theory, which I like, but I think it's a, it's a good one that I go back to fairly frequently. Excellent. Thank you, Zach. And uh, Satoru? The book that I want to recommend doesn't really has to do with security, but it's a book by uh, Professor Shinichi Kitaoka, and it's called uh, Self-Respect and In- Independence of Mind, The Challenge of Yukichi Fukuzawa, who is the founder of Keio University. Not that I'm, you know, that I work at Keio University. The book is very interesting because, you know, he basically lived through this period when Japan uh, faced enormous challenges, facing the advance of Western nations. Japan was trying to modernize its economic and political foundations, while you know, the Western countries were uh, coming to Asia and so forth. So, uh, so it's a story about Japan's self-transformation to adapt to rapidly changing international circumstances. And I think that's something that not only non-Japanese, but also Japanese should be reading to sort of get ideas about, you know, how we should be dealing with changing international landscape. Yeah. Thank you, Mori-sensei. As a former Keio student, I feel like I should definitely add that to my to-read to list. Um, but, so the next question would be, what do you think people often get wrong about Japan? Boy, there's so many things. And, and I should preface this by saying that I get many things wrong about Japan. So maybe the thing I hear most often from people that don't pay attention to Japan is that Japan is sort of rearming or remilitarizing, which I think anybody that listens to this podcast probably is aware is, is not an accurate description of what's been going on in Japan over decades and certainly not of what's going on in Japan now. But I think there's this very simplistic story that people who don't watch Japan closely tell themselves, which is, you know, Japan hasn't had a military and now it's talking about strike capability or things of this sort. I think a little of this is probably sometimes Chinese propaganda. I hear this fairly frequently, especially from reporters who are looking to do stories and trying to find some angle. So anyways, as you all know, Japan is not out of the blue rearming. Japan has had defense capabilities basically since right after World War II. And it's, you know, I think as Satoru is saying, even if we get to 2% of spending on defense, it's still going to be for a while, at least under the NATO threshold that the U.S. is looking for from its European allies. So this is, uh, I think, an evolution, not a revolution, which is the critical aspect in my mind. Thank you, Zach. Um, Mori-sensei? 
Mine's actually very similar to um, Zach's point. And sometimes I used to hear opinions saying that Japan's becoming more nationalistic and so forth. That's not so much the case, I think. Japan is not as nationalistic as it used to be, quite fr- frankly. I think there's increasing awareness that Japan is dependent on foreign countries more and more as we are affected by the global economy and so forth. So uh, rather than becoming sort of, you know, sort of nationalistic or militaristic, I think there's even more awareness and enthusiasm to be more internationalistic. Sort of a related point is about uh, Japan being pacifist. There's pacifist sentiment there, but I think the general public is becoming more and more aware of this acute uh, security environment, and they they are more open to talking about uh, defense policy issues these days. It's amazing the kind of discussion that we have these days. You know, you have these booklets and uh, magazine articles talking about nuclear issues, which was not really thinkable uh, a decade ago. Uh, it wasn't there. When I teach classes, you know, there are students who are ask questions about these issues, and there's a lot of um, you know active uh, intellectual enthusiasm on. Uh, security issues that used to be sort of taboo. There are changes that are occurring, and I think people should shed light on that. And, um, you know, including myself, we need to shed light on that and try to present Japan as accurate as possible. Thank you, Mori-sensei and Zach. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on another episode of Japan Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Japan Memo on the podcast platform of your choice. For more insightful analysis, I also encourage you to look at past research by the Japan Chair Program and the IISS on our website. And we also hope to connect with you on Twitter, where we are active sharing the latest news and analysis on everything Japanese geopolitics and more. You can find me at Robert Allen Ward, Yuka at Yuka Koshino, Satoru at Satoru Forest, and Zach at Zach Cooper. Thank you very much and see you next time.